Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me this week are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five most popular stories on our websites, discuss the implications they have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. Make sure you get it delivered to the inbox first and subscribe to us on YouTube at IEN Magazine so you can join us every Thursday when we go live. Jeff, how are you doing this week? Excellent, David. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Other than these weird seasonal winter allergies or whatever, just like my winter eye wetness that I get now. I, th- I think that's called a cold. Is that a cold? Winter eye wetness oh, is just, not what it's called. It's winter eye wetness. Yeah. Okay. Um, or I'm sick, in which case I'm sorry. No, that's winter eye wetness. It's not contagious. <laughs> that's not contagious. No. Then we're good. Anna, how are you doing this week? Uh, fine, as long as you're not sick. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not sick. I'm sure it is the increase in dust mites or whatever it is. They're I feel hi- like the, I, the dust mites are hibernating on your face. They are. Yeah. It just really means that I need to clean the house. That's what I mean. Or and, shave your beard. Oh, you know what? I was thinking about doing that this Christmas. Like, because my kids have never seen my face. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. it's like this weird, like long running joke in my family about how like I'm the only sibling who has seen my dad's face. And I like saw it when I was like six months old or something. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know that I want to get to that point where then I just I, I wouldn't be able to shave. Like, so I don't know. So maybe coming into the new year, well, it'll, I'm going to grow back immediately. But there will be a window, maybe. Take a photo and then, yeah. Yeah, a little cold face photo. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Before we get started with our first story this week, we have a word from our sponsor. One of the long-lasting impacts of COVID-19 and the global pandemic it created has been the priority now being placed on long-term enterprise-wide planning. So join me and Jeff. We talk about Oracle NetSuite's newest white paper, the ultimate guide to scenario planning, to hear about new strategies and steps you can use to de-risk your organization. Download it now. Check out the link below or in the description. We encourage you to do it soon because I think next week, Jeff, we got another one kind of hot off the presses that I'm excited to see. That's uh, Absolutely. I think that one turned out really well. Okay. Our first story this week. Hasbro cuts 1,100 jobs prompted by ongoing malaise in toy business. On Monday, the toy maker said it's cutting some 1,100 jobs, about 20% of its workforce. Apparently, the toy business isn't booming, and the holiday season has been sluggish, despite the already gross display beneath my tree. The layoffs are on top of 800 cuts already made this year as the company tries to save $300 million annually by 2025. At the end of 2022, the company said it had some 6,490 employees. The 1,900 jobs account for nearly 30% of the staff. Many of the problems stem from the COVID lockdown when parents filled toy rooms to keep quarantined kids entertained. But sales have slowed. Last holiday season, many toy companies had to slash prices to get rid of merchandise due to weak demand. According to the advisors at Circana, or Circana, Circana, Toy sales in the U.S. were down 8% from January through August. In a memo, Hasbro CEO Chris Cox said, quote, The market headwinds we anticipated have proven to be stronger and more persistent than planned. 
Hasbro is going to shift focus to fewer, bigger brands, gaming, digital, and its direct-to-consumer business. On December 6th, the Rhode Island company turned 100. Anna, will Hasbro see another 100 years? That's quite the leap. Yes, I believe so. <laughs> I mean, it's Hasbro. Right? Yeah, I'm yeah. not worried about the the ability of Hasbro to survive. Hasbro is one of like the big, it's the big two. One of the big two. The big two, yeah. yeah. In toys, as yeah. they're known. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, one thing I think that's been interesting about the toy market, and I was reading up on this a little bit um, in preparation for this podcast, and I didn't realize this, but nearly every consumer segment, as we know, has experienced record inflation. Mm-hmm. So prices are going up, except the toy industry has not been privy to that. Really? <laughs> yes. In fact, it's experienced the opposite in the last couple of years, which is actually uh, deflation. So a recent report by Business Insider that I found points to some consumer price index data on this issue, identifying the fact that a toy that cost $20 in 1993 would only cost $4.68 today. Oh, what? Right. Oh, wow. And they blame, by and large, cheap overseas production of toys, which obviously will drive down pricing for everyone in the game, no matter where you produce. But if you're a a toy company, uh, more than likely that is China because 70% of global toy production takes place there. Um, So this has, you know, led analysts to ask whether the toy industry is inflation proof. Okay. And if the answer is yes, that's good for consumers, but that's bad for toy makers, you know, Mm -hmm. like they still have, um, you know, higher costs. They're still paying their workers more. And if you can't get consumers to pay more for your product, then guess what that does to profits. Um, and then I think, you know, you alluded to this as well, but the other challenge being, um, post pandemic buying habits. So first of all, 8% dip, um, coming off to, I'm assuming record years. Yeah for the toy industry. Um, you know, I don't know what Hasbro is expecting exactly that, that their ability to maintain that growth for a long period of time. I don't think that's realistic, but we saw a lot of companies fall victim to uh, making these outsized projections when really what they were dealing with was a pandemic bump. Yeah. But they didn't know. They didn't know how long it was going to last. They didn't, but I think, uh, you have to know not not permanent, right? Right. It did, Maybe, exactly. Hopefully. Like not permanent. I think that that was that was implied by the pandemic, right? I hope so. I don't know. I don't know when we were in it. I was just like, oh my goodness, this is the new normal. This I don't is forever. Know. This I, yeah, is maybe. But, um, you know, I think the other thing that you have to think about too is that now that people are back in stores and they're buying less online, they're actually going to Target or Walmart or whatever to buy, um, toy companies are pressured uh, to drop prices on um, certain items in order to capture that impulse purchase dollar because- mm-hmm. Toys, as we know, are not a necessity. So, you know, they can't drive the prices to the moon and still retain buyers. It's just not how that market works. Yeah. So a lot of challenges here. Um, I, you know, I was very interested to find out uh, about, um, you know, the declining price in toys, but it kind of makes sense to me now in the context of my own life. Um, You can get a lot of toys for for not that much money. You Um, can. That's why I wonder, like, is it all toys? Because we all know that like junk aisle in the toy aisle where like everything's under a dollar and you're just like, you're buying it with the hopes that it lasts until you get it to the car. Oh, certainly. I mean, it's not an apples to apples comparison to compare dollar store, a dollar store doll to a Lego set. Yeah. However, um, if you can get a high volume of toys for low cost, it's going to drive challenges for the entire industry, no matter what kind of product you make, in my opinion. But yeah. 
So, Jeff, have you noticed? Because for me, I guess uh, for me, it's all the car and the guy aisle, right? Uh, and those certainly aren't cheaper than they used to be. <laughs> um, but is Hasbro in a precarious position here just because uh, of what's happening in the market? I mean, maybe what they need to focus on is uh, toy drives. <laughs> you know, just well, just because like like I know my toy room is full. You know, and actually, after my entire family helped me move into a new home, they're all like, oh, we're never buying you another toy again. That's what everybody says. But it always still happens. Oh, I, th- I, I think there's there's other social dynamics kind of at play here. Like Anna alluded to, for a lot of these toys, yeah, they are somewhat inflation-proof in terms of their pricing. But not everything else is, okay? Yeah. We're paying a lot more for food. We're paying a lot more for gas and for heat and all of those types of things. So if you're a parent, you are in a tough spot because – there is some something's got to give a little bit. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at toys, maybe you are buying some of those less expensive options that are not Hasbro brands. Right. I think some of the other things that comes in, when you look at Hasbro specifically, yeah. when you look at their leading brands, Nerf. Now, I love Nerf stuff, but there's not a ton more you can innovate in terms of guns and balls and other things you can do with Nerf. What It is what it is. I mean, it's, a great, it's a great product offering, but there's not a ton of innovation or things you can do that are different there. Same thing, I mean, Marvel's kind of cooled off. Mm-hmm. Star Wars is kind of cooled off. There's not new movies, you know, necessarily driving a lot of product development or new things there. Same thing with like G.I. Joe, uh, My Little Pony, some of these other ones, Transformers, that in the past I think have had sort of something in society, whether it's a movie or a cartoon or something really pushing them out and making them more popular potentially. Yeah. Whereas it's become a little bit more of a legacy brand. On the other side of that, you've got Mattel who's got Barbie. I mean, everything blew up after that movie came mm-hmm. out this summer. So I think they've got that as sort of a push to help them through some of these tougher times. Now, they're seeing their stock price drop just as badly as Hasbro has, so they're not exactly killing it right now. But I think when parents are faced with some of these decisions in terms of what to buy, it, how many Monopoly games can you get? <sighs> Especially if you're outside of that sort of that bubble we were just talking about during the pandemic where, hey, look, I'm guilty. We have like three different Monopoly games at home. I we got like the Wisconsinopoly, low. the regular yeah. one, and some other, you know, Catopoly or something. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Catopoly. So yes. there's there's plenty of options. But if you come to a point where everything else is more expensive, you're going to start trimming someplace. And you're going to maybe start looking more at those purchases to sort of validate them. And I think that may be where Hasbro is hurting a little bit. They haven't had some of those other sort of social pushes for yeah. some of their brands. What is the board rock, boardwalk of Catopoly? I have no idea. It's sort of like rare. Yeah, Does I it go know. from like rare cats? I'm really interested now. <laughs> um, Seth is watching us. It's good to hear from you, Seth. It's been a minute. He says just Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Right on, Seth. I don't understand the context, but just right on. Um, well, the one thing... It, Oh, okay. The, the one thing I wonder about, thanks, Alex. Nobody can hear you. Yeah. Appreciate he, you telling us that, that so he, we can just stop everything. He said that here. he's got a bicep. He's ripping one out. Oh, okay. Okay. I think the other thing that's interesting, too, is toys are being made better, like you alluded to, so they're lasting longer. Agreed. So yeah. maybe there isn't the need to replace stuff as much as there was in the past. Yeah. So. Well, uh, mentioning Marvel in particular is that some of these brands are like, seeing historic lows, both in terms of box office returns, and that has to translate to toy sales, like you said. Um, It really made me look at Hasbro Pulse, because the company has invested a lot into this direct-to-consumer brand, and I'm constantly impressed by the market for toys that are like marketed towards adult collectors, and I'm kind of curious as to when that bubble is going to burst, especially with 
some of how we've seen inflation impact everything else. When it comes to discretion, you know, uh, discretionary spending, I have to feel like dad's toy collection <laughs> goes before mac and cheese. You hope, yeah. you hope, right? And I mean, it's great. You'll get lost on Hasbro Pulse real easy. It's, a co- it's like a combination of like deep cuts in movies and nostalgia, like limited edition Ewoks, and lesser known X-Men from like in the 90s style action figure, you can complete the entire set of X-Men with Banshee, Forge and Psylocke. Don't get me wrong. Like while I was researching this article, (laughs) I was just like, get out of there, get out of there. (laughs) But it's, you know, I'm, I'm curious if that is a sustainable market because you're still, those are high margin items, but I just don't know if they'll stay. They also, I thought Hasbro was also the one that had the, deal with the 3d printing company. Yeah. Where you can put your own face on an action figure. And if that gets a little bit tighter, that would be great. Just because right now it's just clearly kind of a bad 3d printed head on an otherwise normal action figure. Uh, Jesse, who's watching us live. Good to see you, Jesse. She says, I spent far too long in a five below the other day. Right. What's a five below? It's like a dollar store, except a little bit better. So oh. everything's $5 or less, except oh. for, you know, in the dollar store way. So some of it's more. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Um, actually, one thing that has to be encouraging is that I heard uh, Toys R Us is going to see a resurgence. They're going to try bringing back a few of those box stores. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> As I've heard that every year for the last every five. Every year since they went away. Toys R Us was always super, like much more expensive than like Walmart for toys. So Agreed. I mean, that'd be, that'd be a tough one, especially right now. Getting back to your point about the adult collectibles, I was at a comic book convention this weekend. <laughs> the market's strong, shall we say. There was <laughs> okay. plenty of people looking at stuff there. So probably kind of a roller coaster type dynamic with that market. But yeah. right now, pretty good. Any good finds there? Yeah. <sighs> Going to need to talk about that later. Um, I I do have to, I uh, you kind of mentioned the movies too, but I, you have to think that they're getting diminishing returns on the entertainment side of the business just because, you know, one of the big movies that is in the works is a Play-Doh movie. Boo. Great. Wow. I know. I know. Like they're just, every brand's going to have its own movie. They still have the Transformers franchise, GI Joe, which is waning my little pony, which I would say was waning, but, uh, everyone at daycare is into the ponies. So, <laughs> I mean, if only 10% of them go see a movie, my goodness. All right. Well, our next most popular story is a doozy. Authorities seize 11 tons of cocaine hidden in frozen tuna. Spanish authorities recently seized 11 tons of cocaine and arrested 20 people in a pair of stings against smugglers importing drugs inside shipping containers. More than 16,500 pounds of cocaína were seized and found hidden between... Pieces hidden between pieces of frozen tuna. There was some discrepancy as to whether or not it was in between pieces of frozen tuna or inside tuna. It was in between the pieces. According to investigators, the criminal organization was using a frozen seafood company as a front to bring in drugs from South America. A separate bust netted another 7,500 pounds of cocaine found in false bottoms of shipping containers. Anna. Who knew that drug smugglers would choose frozen tuna as a front? I got to say, it was, uh, that one was a shock to me, but I guess, hey, I mean, I, I guess I thought, I thought it was always coffee. You know, you looked at Adversify. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, this was a complex setup. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, 
you know, according to Reuters, uh, this um, smuggling network set up an import company to trade the frozen fish um, and also invested in real estate. I noticed cool. that too. Like, yeah. uh, hey, we're going to do tuna, seafood, and why not some real estate? Yeah, and some real estate. I feel like that's real estate. Isn't that known for like laundering money? I, I don't. I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. I, it's new. I mean, I'm not. Uh, I don't launder. The answer to everything is yeah. yes when it comes to laundering money. Okay. It's been tried. It's all. Been <laughs> oh, I, yeah, yeah. Okay. But um, in this case, obviously, like very uh, visible story. Uh, police said that they were um, sur- like there was surveillance in place for months on this group, um, and then the officers determined that the firm was covering up its involvement in drug smuggling by sending a voluminous flow of containers by sea from a variety of companies at origin with the Iberian Peninsula always as the destination. So to answer your question, that's how you figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. Because because, like if you look at um, how big this corridor is for drug um, trafficking, it's huge. I didn't know anything about this, but um, from what I read, uh, by some estimates, up to 80% of the hash consumed in Europe passes through the Strait of Gibraltar, which is the southernmost tip of this peninsula. Whoa. Yeah. And apparently authorities have like struggled to police this area, even though it's been like a huge hotspot for drug trafficking for decades um, because it enables groups to kind of move freely via boat between Europe and Africa. So I don't know what the answer is to this massive and complex problem of drug trafficking. Yeah. That's not really what I'm here for. But <laughs> come on. <laughs> Just like do your homework. Sudden she has the yeah. answer. Just like it was that simple. Here the is, war guys. on drugs yeah. can be defeated this way. Mm-hmm. And that's how it ended. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, from a manufacturing perspective, uh, you know, I think like, obviously this stuff is just like a really bad look for, you know, manufacturing and for these folks that actually do things above board to, you know, you hate to see the publicity around this and generates like suspicion. Yeah, no. What, what kind of hit is big tuna taken? I know big tuna. Exactly. It's Mm -hmm. a black eye for big tuna. Uh, they have enough problems. (laughs) What does Jim Holpert have to do with this? (laughs) It is. Oh, uh, I mean, Jesse, who's watching this, says that is that what made her tuna sub? Uh, is that what why her tuna sub made her so awake today? That's why, Jesse. Yeah, I mean, maybe it was just like a caloric infusion. But your European tuna, yeah, that you or, got, or the blow. Is that- uh, anyway, my point is that uh, I, on the other hand, like a good cautionary tale in this case isn't the worst thing. You know, I yeah. think like it's uh, it's a good deterrent to show companies that if you do. Something like this, you can very easily get caught. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I think these people were drug traffickers more than food manufacturers. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, um, the the authorities that investigated were calling this a significant blow to the um, this major distribution network in Europe. Uh, I yeah. think significant. Yeah. No, it was significant major. blow. Yeah. It was yeah. It was quote. Yeah. Uh, police described the arrests as a quote major blow. Major blow to yeah. one of Europe's most powerful distribution networks. Word choice. It's all about word choice there. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I um I doubt that is true. True. I feel like uh, drug traffickers have been pretty resilient <laughs> over yeah. time. Oh my goodness! What if eleven tons of cocaine is a drop in the bucket? Which it probably is. Probably, sad. I yeah. know. So I don't know this story. I mean, it was like it was kind of hard to to generate takeaways from this because you know this was just a front, um, you know, as as it pertains to our industry. But um, I guess don't don't do it. No, it's if if you're a tuna processor and you see this as as a, an idea to diversify don't yeah 
Well, how do you know? How do you know, like, if the people we behind such your a diverse tuna. audience, we just reach everybody. Yeah. Uh, for our readers in Big Tuna, you know, when the guy comes to you with yeah. uh, uh, something that you can't refuse, refuse it. Refuse it. Yeah. Is Gibraltar tuna the new street name for cocaine? <laughs> you got any Gibraltar tuna? Yeah. Hitting the club tonight. Yeah. Jesse, when you order that sub at Subway. <laughs> yeah. Don't get the Gibraltar tuna. Ask, ask for <laughs> the Gibraltar. Right. And the uh, major blow, that's for Nolan. Uh, Jeff, one thing I'm curious about. So what happens to the tuna? Like, I mean, it was individually wrapped. And I mean, if this has been going on for so long, are they just ditching all the food i mean of course they are well i mean i mean yeah yeah, but i mean i don't know well because if they're trying to operate as a seafood processor david i'm just saying like maybe david there's a real disruption would would you want food that have been stored next to 11 tons of cocaine we might be like my little tuna pouches might have been i don't think so originally sourced i mean i don't think so it depends on how much of a front this like seafood company was was it name only or is there gibraltar tuna tuna out there well this kind of in a really weird way that there's no way you could have imagined does help segue into the point I was going to make. What? All right. Okay. Way to go, David. Ah, you just it. fell right into that one. Yeah, no, it's, you know, after 150 Tripped, of stumbled these. backwards. Yeah, anyway, got there. I think one of the things that I've that we've seen is, pick your analogy, like if, where there's smoke, there's fire, or there's an opportunity, it's going to be exploited. I've seen that with cyber security type stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons, obviously, the bad guys used this front or this method to get the, the drugs into the country is because it worked, right? Yeah. So it makes you think, well, why did they pick this? What is wrong here? We see in the U.S. the number of like OSHA inspections, FDA inspections, all of those things have decreased over the years in terms of the number of frequency of them just because we don't have the manpower to do it. Yeah. That's kind of feels like what's happening here as well. There had to be, granted, they had a front, they had an illegal business doing it, all these other things. But there's also a downfall at the ports in terms of going through stuff, inspecting it before it gets into the country, all of that type of stuff, too. Yeah. So that reinforces the need to increase or upgrade the level of security that we have for a lot of these very precious materials, if you want to call them that. Whether it's drugs, food, all these things we need on a day-to-day basis to make sure it's not being contaminated by drugs with cocaine. Well, but to, in, sum, to summarize, Jeff is saying the timing is right. <laughs> if you want to get into Gibraltar tuna, it kind of is, but it wouldn't have to be because we have all of this wonderful and amazing technology that would allow us to look more thoroughly at all of this stuff. Yeah. Look at the different x-ray technology, the different scanning technology that we have that we can pinpoint stuff and we use it for quality control, quality assurance within the factory. Maybe some of that needs to evolve even before it comes into the factory and start utilizing some of this other technology we have. And the good news is we do have traceability software and everything's tagged. So, David mm-hmm. and Jesse, I don't think we need to worry about the Gibraltar tuna getting to Subway. I mean, well, you have you seen the wire? You can make those containers disappear, just saying. Um, actually, one of the bigger points of concern isn't necessarily using uh, the tuna as a front, but the false bottoms is the shipping containers just because there are a lot more shipping containers out there than there are yeah. tuna. And I want to know the person watching the camera feed, right? Who's just like, that is a weird amount of tuna going in and out of this place. Like at what point are they just like, okay, something else is going on here. You know, like after the 30th shipment of the day where they're just what's like, we're, weird- just, we're just not moving that much tuna. What's you know? a weird amount? I don't, that's what I mean. I want to know what the breaking point was where he's like, we got to go see. We got, we got to look into this. Too much. All right. Our next most popular story. Amazon's internal plans to advance California interests laid bare in leaked memo. 
A recent leaked memo from Amazon has given us a look at the company's plans to grow its influence in Southern California. For example, the company hopes to improve its reputation through charity works and push back against organized labor. The eight-page document, the, quote, Community Engagement Plan for 2024, really spells out how one of America's biggest companies executes on its public relations objectives. It also shows how Amazon hopes to court politicians and community groups to push its interests in an area where it could be hampered by moratoriums on warehouse development. Amazon says its top priority is so in its top priority in Southern California is addressing quote labor agitation that uses false narratives and incorrect information to affect public opinion and public policy. The retailer has had multiple rows with unionization efforts in the past few years. The memo also says that Amazon faces, quote, reputational challenges because people believe the company builds facilities in predominantly communities of color and poverty, which negatively impacts their health. Next year, the company hopes to, quote, earn the trust of community groups and nonprofits like the San Bernardino Valley College Foundation, the Children's Fund, and Feeding America to help push back state bills that are going to threaten Amazon's interests. For example, a pair of proposed bills would prohibit companies from building large warehouses within 1,000 feet of private homes, apartments, schools, daycares, and other facilities. The memo also detailed plans to stop single-use plastic bans, as well as how they cultivated a politician with donations, and how it hopes to generate positive news stories. Anna, there was a lot in this story about everything that happens in corporate America. And I think that it was surprising to kind of just read it, but it wasn't necessarily surprising that it was happening. No, I mean, if anyone's surprised by this, I am surprised by that. You're surprised by their surprise. <laughs> I am. Agreed. I, yeah. Agreed. A lot of surprise. Yeah. Um, no, I think that, you know, Amazon's doing little more here than detailing ways in which it can boost its public image, which is a real tangible issue for a company that takes a lot of flack for a lot of reasons. Um, and also to manage variables like, as you said, warehouse moratoriums, unionization, efforts that cost them money. Mm -hmm. um, I think the companies out there that act in ways one might consider to be purely altruistic are rare. <laughs> and almost every single one of them, whether they articulate that or not, um, they know they have certain, uh, you know, business interests, even in their giving back, you know, campaigns. They know that those reflect positively on them um, for those forms of public goodwill. That's just... Obvious. Yes. I would say. Yeah. Um, so to me, this document is just a look in the window of Amazon, but I'm not seeing anything unique necessarily. We know Amazon is anti-union. That's not a secret. Um, it stands to reason that like there was a point in there about they s decided they were going to stop donating to this art gallery <laughs> where oh, yeah, yeah. the person's exhibit was about it, like like the cheech. Yeah, was how, the art museum. Well, the exhibit was um, an Amazon facility on fire, and the <laughs> artist gave this really like hostile interview about the company. Okay, like, I, come on, there's like a lot of things I would criticize Amazon for, but like, not that probably. Like, if they don't want to donate to their money to that effort, okay, yeah, like if that the makes cheech, sense. Like, if the cheech comes back and says, "Why?" They're like, "Because of the exhibit where you were burning our facility to the ground because of the fire." Yeah, yeah the fire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
So I don't know. I think if like if if Amazon learns anything from this, it's not going to be like them taking a hard look in the mirror about corporate strategy. <laughs> it's going to be them maybe um, tightening up its communication policies. Uh, yeah. So these kind of documents feature maybe more coded language or they're not shared with as many people. Um I don't see Amazon being shamed into like doing better. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That's not what corporations do. And to a certain extent, like successful corporations do find a way to use public perception to their advantage. Um, so it's smart business to like do good in a community. We know that like, yeah, whether or not that brings a return, you know, that's up to consumers and yeah. in this case, local politicians maybe, but, um, but it, to me, all of this stuff was like, you know, it's not, a great look for it to be leaked of course and to be laid bare as the headline says but none of it is a surprise no uh community outreach is like starting a new business 101 like uh, the first thing you do is get out in the community and make a positive uh, a positive impact so that way you kind of get your name out there Jeff, I mean there is a little bit at stake here because if you're talking about Southern California and you're talking about a bill that says you can't build a large warehouse within a thousand feet of private homes, apartments, schools, daycares, and other facilities, you might be running out of places to put one. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons that like this could have generated a lot more interest or kind of got the headline it did or, or whatever is because when you take things that are perceived as being more from the heart or for without having a, a measurable ROI attached to it and you present that in a more pragmatic way, people are like, what? I mean- <laughs> They're not doing this because they just want to and because it's the right thing. No, I mean, when you look, it was an internal memo. And I think the bigger issue, like I think Anna alluded to, is like, don't, how does this get out the door? Yeah. Somebody obviously had a motive here. They're trying to make Amazon look bad. Somebody internally was upset about some things. A lot of the issues that they have to address, yeah, it it looked like something that when I was working at an ad agency, I would have put together for a customer. Oh, yeah. It it, it was very straightforward. And you can grab some of these tidbits out of there and make it into a bigger, issue or, or debate or whatever you want to say. But yeah, it was, it was very simply a corporate memo talking about what they wanted to do and how they were going to measure the impact. A couple of things that kind of caught my attention, though, first was them saying that they were actually having trouble getting donations to politicians yeah. because of the negative backlash. I mean, that's really interesting because there has been this groundswell of polarizing opinions about Amazon, mm-hmm. but to have that actually elevate to the point where politicians wouldn't take money, I mean, that's interesting. That's a red flag right that there. Is, <laughs> yeah, you definitely got some work to do, some outreach there. As far as that moratorium goes, I mean, it had to come at some point, I guess. I'm not familiar enough with the geography there to know how much, how limited the green space is or what the pollution impacts are. That's what they seem to talk about is the traffic and the pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, California is definitely going to be one of the tougher states when it comes to addressing those issues. So, oh, yeah. But last time I checked, there's also – a ton of space for warehouses in a lot of other areas too. Yeah. So even if it's not Southern California, which is a very expensive place to operate in and is obviously got some community backlash here, Amazon's big enough and smart enough to find another place to build warehouses too. So while they might prefer to stay here and continue with, I think it was like an $80 million investment that they've made in Southern California. I mean, it was, I think it was much more than that, but um, I think they'll figure it out. Yeah. Uh, to me, that was the only surprise was that the document leaked. And I could see if they haven't already other companies grabbing this document and just being like, all right, just go switch out the names and like figure out how we can do this. Because, I mean, charity washing isn't new. I mean, uh, really, it's best practices for other companies like we've talked about. Um, you know, if you want to adopt a family and you don't alert the media, did it ever happen? 
you know, to some people. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. it is altruistic and you do it because you're doing the right. You want to do some good in the uh, in the community. But I'm, like uh, charity is a somewhat selfish thing, which is OK. It's good. It's good. if yeah. Two goods come out. Well, of it. And I didn't even take that away. My point was just this was written to say we're doing this and this is the ROI on it because the ROI for a lot of people isn't. We did a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to clarify, it was $80 billion in the last 13 years that they've invested in this geographic area. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we got a thumbs up from somebody <clears throat> that I think is watching us from a local watering hole. And that's fantastic. Um, is that Waypoint? Man, that's what? solid. Awesome. We're live streaming at Waypoint. Man, the numbers are growing. <laughs> um, you know, at least some good still comes from charity washing efforts and photo opportunities. Um, I was also surprised that uh, it won't continue to support organizations uh, that did not result in measurable positive impact to its brand and reputation. Yeah, That one was a little That's, like, yeah. I mean, I guess when they're just laying it bare, like they said, that was the one where they're just like, no, we didn't get the ROI. So nothing for the cheech anymore or whoever else. <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean, yeah, in terms of an eight page document being leaked, it really not nearly as bad for Amazon as other things we've seen. Um, all right. Our next most popular story. Ford to cut F-150 Lightning production in half. According to Automotive News, Ford plans to reduce production of its Lightning full EV pickup by 50% starting next month. A recent document allegedly sent to a Ford supplier says the automaker is going to pull back its run rate from 3,200 trucks a week to about 1,600 trucks a week. Ford says the move is a result of a planning effort to better match supply with demand. Demand has been a challenge. The F-150 was released to great fanfare in 2021. Ford doubled production before closing its reservation system in 2022 due to overwhelming interest. But a year later... After filling those orders and facing a lot of new comp- uh, competition, Ford has addre- uh, has to address many challenges. Analysts say the low-hanging EV customer fruit is gone, and companies will need to lower prices and add features to lure the next crop of buyers. According to the Detroit Free Press, Ford CFO John Lawler said Ford is, quote, not not moving forward with EV plans, <laughs> rather working to match its capacity with the demand. It's, I like it when it's really succinct like that. <laughs> well, we're not not doing that. The company also has renewed interest in hybrids and doubled down on its commitment to gas-powered trucks. Anna, I don't feel like this is that surprising. We speculated, speculated that this might happen after the uh, sort of initial rush of uh, lightning interest kind of uh, faded. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is just the realization of that. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, you know, I think that there was certainly parties out there who are saying this is an, a warning sign on EVs. Um, but I think we've already gotten those signals and that the automakers are responding to them. Mm-hmm. And I don't see this as much more than the cyclical nature of auto production, where companies are constantly reworking their run rates to gain accuracy on supply and demand. That's not an EV thing. That's an everything thing with automotive. Um, they do that all the time. Mm-hmm. If they didn't, if they had a better handle on that, that you would not see those like, you know, we're idling for two weeks yeah. <laughs> stuff that you do see, you know. Yeah. Um, that being said, obviously, we know that there are some hangups with um, how the EV market moves forward. 
But I think the good news is that automakers are already well on their way to addressing many of those challenges. One is with EV charging and infrastructure. Um, tons of progress is being made there um, with everybody agreeing on a port. And then now this like the GM Flying J partnership we talked about recently where they're going to bring um, electric charging to gas stations. Um, all of these automakers have uh, battery and materials efforts underway. They're scaling. They're slowly reducing uh, prices. They're adding models. They're right-sizing other units of their business. So it's all happening already. Mm -hmm. um, this is just another piece of that, in my opinion. I do think um, it's a challenge to grab market share now that you've picked off the higher income individuals, the lower uh, hanging fruit customers or something. I don't know how yeah. you said it. Oh, I said the uh, the low hanging EV customer fruit. <laughs> fruit at the end, huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The low hanging EV customer fruit has mm -hmm. already been picked. Um, but those are, you know, higher income individuals um, who are, let's say, demographically friendly towards EVs. Mm -hmm. um, the next phase of growth will be more difficult. But as Andy pointed out on last week's podcast or the week before when he was guesting, um, there is a plateau for new technology and we're not that far from it where, yeah. um, you know, a new technology gets to the point where it's widely accepted enough um, that it just becomes a matter of course people adopt it. <laughs> um, so at, at the risk of oversimplifying, I think it's just a bit of a balancing act right now. We know there are challenges ahead. We expected challenges. The, the automakers are well aware of them. I don't think this is a knee-jerk thing. I think this is just part and parcel of how they move forward. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, I apologize. I meant to go to you first with the story and just completely uh, scrolled too far. But uh, two months ago, CFO... I'll eventually get over it. <laughs> Well, hopefully you do after this segue. Uh, so two months ago, the CFO John Lawler said the narrative has taken over that EVs aren't growing, but they're, they are growing. It's just growing at a slower pace than the industry. And quite frankly, we expected. Did that stand out to you at all as a surprise? Or it just seemed like, I don't know, it just seemed like this was a, a natural course for the market to take. Well, I think it's a bit of a surprise just because this isn't the trend that the automotive sector has laid out in the past. Okay. I still can't wait, help but go back to 2007, 2008, 2009 when the big three were in Washington, you know, basically hands outstretched looking for help. Yeah. And a lot of that came from the fact that they were overproducing mm -hmm. and then undercharging. So basically they weren't selling a lot of their vehicles at what they needed to to be as profitable as they needed to to cover their bills. Yeah. So to me, this was a relief in some okay. respects. Catch saying, it. good, you're pulling back. You've seen what demand is. You're being smart and not replicating some of the mistakes of the past. Mm -hmm. So it's positive there. Here's what here's where this could be a huge challenge and a huge issue, though, for the marketplace. I think overall, the consumer reception of EV trucks has been very lukewarm. Yeah. It doesn't have the range they want. It's still, you know, the charging is a still a concern despite all the infrastructure improvements. When you're out on a work truck, you, you don't want to worry about that. And I think that's still a concern, especially when you're dealing with putting the air conditioning on, putting the heating on. That battery just sucks its juice out real fast. Mm -hmm. So I think overall, they're just it hasn't caught on the way that they had hoped. And I think as you get more competitors out there, good and bad. It hurts the good guy. It hurts the best ones in class as well. So yeah. even though the F-150 Lightning is the leading selling EV truck right now, 
Again, not real great reviews for the Cybertruck. That one's not on the road right now. <laughs> yeah. But also, nobody's really doing... I mean, Rivian is out there, but it's got some issues as well. It's not up to scale in terms of a production issue. Silverado, we still don't know about. And that's really what you've got right now for EV trucks. So I think when you also see a dynamic where Ford is scaling back production, in addition to all the other headlines you've seen out there, I just worry what this could mean for this market long term. Are mm -hmm. people going to make these decisions now saying, uh, I don't know, people aren't really getting behind it. Ford doesn't really even believe in their own product, that they're going to make more of them. What is that going to do? Because the other part of this this article was they're also putting more money into the gas power trucks. Yeah, mm -hmm. and hybrids, yeah. <clears throat> Read another article where Ford's delaying about $12 billion in EV spending mm -hmm. total right now. So... We can see it from what I think is a very smart, pragmatic business approach. The consumer could see it as they don't believe in this. Not buying I? It. Yeah, completely agree. Well, and I also uh, I also really feel for the employees because Ford temporarily idled one of three shifts in a uh, lightning plant, which affected 700 workers. Really feel for the suppliers, right? Because uh, the cuts have upended a lot of the suppliers that have invested millions in the tooling and equipment to make these or to meet these demands. I mean, it's almost like it's kind of odd, right? Because when you have these types of uh, new market segments, you kind of need the cart before the horse. Yeah. And then as a result, like uh, if things just don't go according to plan, a lot of people are kind of left holding the bag. Yeah, you want that enthusiasm to really carry you for a bit. And yeah. it seems like maybe that enthusiasm petered out a little bit more quickly than anticipated. No, I think that's true. I yeah. think they're acknowledging that too. As he said, it, you know, it's, it's, not growing as quickly as even we expected. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of balance that uh, it's, it's difficult to approach the market when there's so much new coming out over this like very short period of time for automotive that's like novel and new. I mean, I read something recently about how many people are waiting on the Silverado. So GM just oh, okay. pushed that back a little bit. Um, but you you know, I know there's people out there that are like, well, but if I wait another year or two, what yeah. is battery technology going to do? Or if mm -hmm. I wait a year or two, do I have, um, can I buy a really high quality used model that's, you know, for a much better price? Or did the price go down? I mean, look at how much price movement we've seen in just the last few months because yeah. of what Tesla did and sent everybody else down. So those are other factors I think that maybe are actually discouraging people from buying, unfortunately, is yeah. the investment itself and, yeah. and making that market so active that people are almost paralyzed because they want to have all their options in front of them. Yeah. It has been wild, not just covering the EV automotive market, but particularly EV trucks, because I feel like it has just been hot and cold, particularly over the last year. But I mean, I feel like it was just a couple of weeks ago where we're just like, wow, we really didn't think... EVs were going to take off like this. And they did, you know, uh, Ford had all those uh, sort of orders on the books. They were struggling to meet demand. And it's, you know, we're a quarter later and it's just like, yeah, no, they all changed their mind. This isn't forever. Yeah. I mean, not they're forever. not, they're not, they don't have to pull back forever. This is just for now. Yeah. Right? It's just uh, adjusting course. Mm -hmm. All right. Our most popular story this week, like just not a surprise at all. Tesla recalls nearly all vehicles sold in the United States. Tesla is recalling more than 2 million vehicles to update software and fix a bad system. The system is supposed to make sure drivers are paying attention when using autopilot. But that hasn't been the case. The update will increase warnings and alerts to drivers and even limit the areas where basic versions of autopilot can operate. 
The recall comes after a two-year investigation by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration into a series of crashes, some deadly, that happened while the partially automated driving system was in use. NHTSA says its investigation found Autopilot's method of making sure that drivers are paying attention can be inadequate and can lead to, quote, foreseeable misuse of the system. But safety experts said while the recall is a good step, it still makes the driver responsible and doesn't fix the underlying problem that Tesla's automated systems have trouble trouble spotting and stopping for obstacles in their path. Anna, it's not surprising news that we had a little bit of movement on autopilot and trying to get any sort of fixes in place uh, as to whether or not this goes far enough with a greater problem. I'm not sure. Yeah, and I think that you, you know, uh, experts in the field would agree with you on that, that it maybe does not go far enough. Um, uh, the article quoted Professor Koopman at Carnegie Mellon, who called this a compromise. Um, he had some more harsh words to add to that. Uh, but <laughs> to put a more negative varnish on this, to me, it feels more like a Band-Aid on this whole big drama with the NHTSA. On the one hand, had Tesla not initiated this recall on their own, the agency could have forced them to do that. Um, but some experts are making it sound more like Tesla is throwing the agency a bone. Okay. <laughs> um and maybe in agreeing to this, Tesla just buys some time, um, you know, but from a driver safety perspective, where does that get us? You know, that's what's frustrating for me, because unfortunately for us, we don't want the NHTSA to get off their back, really. Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, we don't, um, because as the article points out, there are some root causes here that are threatening the safety of drivers and they are not being addressed. Mm -hmm. And I think until there are more functional changes to the technology that address these, um, such as it being so easy to fool and it harboring um, more limitations than are indicated in its name, um, then we're not done here. So... Uh, and, and to be honest, like this is just as an aside, but for the people who compare autopilot on a Tesla to autopilot on an airplane, stop, okay? <laughs> like try walking into an airplane store and buying an airplane <laughs> and then just, you just get in it and fly or away on, and order yeah. one online. Yeah. Order one online and just pay the deposit and everyone, they'll just Can give just, it to you and you, you just buy a plane online. Let's see, buy a plane well, online. Before that one takes you. That's not true. the same. It's not the same. It'll get me on some really good lists. So, so I don't know. To me, this was like. It, it had to happen, but if if the end result is it gives Tesla more rope mm -hmm. um, and more time to fool around with this nonsense while people on the road are actually dying because of this technology that they don't know how to use, um, then I'm, I'm not really for that. No, it's hard. <laughs> uh, I don't know who's watching us live, um, but the comment came in that, you know, hey, there are a ton of pedestrians in the sky too, Anna. So. <laughs> Um, Jeff, when it comes to compromise, I understand that when it comes to regulation, you need compromise sometimes, but I just don't think that auto safety and the interstate <laughs> is a place for compromise when it comes to safety. This is absolutely pathetic on so many levels. First of all, this is, this is comparable to a, to you trying to uh, negotiate with your child. I can remember telling the girls, <laughs> you know what? It's cold outside. Put your coat on. Mm -hmm. I don't want to put my coat on. Fine. You just get exasperated and you're like, just put it in the car. 
just keep it in the car just so it's there in case you need it. Because you just you get sick of arguing with them. Yeah. That's basically what the NHTSA did here. But it's absolutely ridiculous because the people that are most at risk aren't the idiots who are abusing autopilot. It's everybody else around it's, them. Who's yep. good at, yeah. And that's what the NHTSA is there for. Yeah. So for them, them to come out and actually be quoted as saying, the benefits of doing this now outweigh the cost of spending another year wrangling with Tesla. That's a quote. Yeah. That is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard from a government regulator. Yeah. That's your job to spend time wrangling with companies so they don't do stupid things like this. Yeah. <laughs> this is ridiculous. And the fact that this has been going on for how long? And this isn't even a recall. This yeah. is a software upgrade. This okay, is yeah. this is something it, it's not where you have to go to the dealership or go wherever and actually get something fixed. Mm-hmm. Okay, because when you do that, there's a cognizant awareness of, hey, there's a safety malfunction on this 2000 pound piece of metal that I'm driving around. I should probably be aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is just software like that they may or thing. may not even realize happens. Yeah. So there's no accountability for the drivers. There's no accountability for Tesla. And NHTSA feels good about it because, hey, we don't have to spend any more time wrangling with Tesla. Mm-hmm. Pathetic. It's uh, it's like uh, where if you just string people along, I mean, it's it successfully, it works successfully for Tesla. Or where they just Until more before. people die. Yeah. yeah. We're great. Yeah. Don't uh, worry. Tesla's working on it, Jeff. Jesse is excited that. that you are fired up. Horrible. Oh, came down there. No, uh, a new televised sport Tesla wrangling. Uh, that's from Mark who's watching us live. I think that might actually do pretty work. well. That yeah. Could work. Mm-hmm. Um, no. So looking into the software update a little bit, because I, uh, I mean, while I'm not as fired up, I do think that, um, there's a lot left out there that could have been done. The software update, um, not a recall will limit where auto steer can be used. So if the driver attempts to engage auto steer when conditions are not met for engagement, it won't engage. But it's not that it won't engage at first. Like it gives you alerts, right? And audible tones, and I'm just like, I'm, because nobody's ever driven around with the check engine light on, right? Yeah, that's just such a deterrent to doing anything. Well, and it's kind of like the seatbelt uh, um, tone that goes off for like five seconds, but you know it's going to go off. Like, is that? Or you always had the guy who just like click and just like sit on it, you know, basically, and not have it on. Just that would be. Oh yeah, guys, you, know. you should really be wearing your seatbelts. I, I am wearing my seatbelt. I am wearing my seatbelt. I don't have control over my passengers. Uh, no, that's not true. I do. Um, the added controls include quote increasing prominence of visual alerts, <laughs> simplifying how auto steer is turned on and off, and additional checks on whether auto steer is being used outside of controlled access roads and when approaching traffic control devices. I don't, uh, there was a lot in terms of like additional checks on whether it's being used outside controlled access roads. How are you going to do that? Well, that's the thing. And part of this, I know I'm going back and forth here a little bit, but you can't make people be smarter. Yeah. Okay. You can't make people make good decisions, but you can eliminate the decision to begin with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to me, the only reason, the only reason I can think of that autopilot is still in place. Well, there's two. There's number one, it's Elon Musk and his hubris. Okay. But the other thing is there's got to be some sort of legal dynamic where they're afraid if they pull this now, mm-hmm. everybody who has been in one of these accidents that was in autopilot is oh. going to come back to them and basically say, so why'd you pull that? It yeah. wasn't why, safe why after all. That? Yeah. Um, Mark thinks a short pulse driver electrocution might be in order. Mm-hmm. Mark, we're not that far apart here. No, we're no. about stuff. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm, I think, I think that, uh, you know, you just, you just give them a little one, you know, if they're not paying attention while autopilot's on, that's not, I mean, that might be a little bit more effective than an increased 
prominence yeah. of a visual alert. Um, Until that shorts gives the individual heart attack and we have a bigger issue. Well, okay, so. I'm sorry. I'm just Jeff, in a no, mood. Jeff's clearly he thinking is. of a much Man. larger shock to the driver. <laughs> just like, it's going to stop the ticker. Um, one thing, so I brought up the, uh, um, whether or not it's being used outside of the controlled access roads because they did say that a driver could be suspended from using the feature if they repeatedly failed to demonstrate continuous and sustained driving responsibility. Nobody believes <laughs> that. <though. laughs> I'm going to send you to your room. Yeah, I was going to say, like, let's just see this one happen. Wow. Um, where they're just like, we're going to take it away. And it's so not only did I not do, believe. Do you get a said, letter that starts out? We're not mad. We're just, just disappointed. Just disappointed. You know what you did. Yeah. You'll get it back in three weeks. Right. All right. Okay. But speaking of dad language, and I agree with everything that's been said here, except for one thing. Okay. An over-the-air software update is a recall. That's It's more and more that's going to start to happen. We need to come around on that. Yeah. You're not going to get fair. sent to the dealership every time something needs to be fixed if they don't have to do that. So maybe it should be. I guess I don't know what the process is in terms of uh, making the consumer aware that it's happening. Do you think the postcard is effective? Because <laughs> that's what we're doing now. I think it's more, I, I understand what you're saying. And you're right, that is going to be a changing dynamic. But it feels like this is a way for them to skirt this without really being accountable or even holding those individuals who are abusing this system aware and mm -hmm. making them aware of it. When you get a recall notice in the mail because they don't happen that often, I do pay attention to it and it makes me want to go there because I don't want the people in my vehicle to be injured or harmed in some way because I didn't fix something. Yeah. At least I know what's going on there. Like when we had that deal with the ignition, like with um, the GM ignition um, deal with the, with the fob and stuff, and you just had to basically go in and get a different key ring. Yeah. Okay. At least you were aware of that and you did something about it and you made sure to at least look at it to make sure it wasn't continuing to be a problem. With a software upgrade on something like this, we're not talking about an infotainment system. We're not talking about even some of the mechanical features, I guess, that, that, that this would also entail. We're talking about something that people are abusing outright. And they need to be more aware of it. Sure, so but I, but if if they can fix it remotely via over air sub, uh, like software update, every automaker is going to do it that way. True. It's not Tesla deciding like we're just we don't want you to know about it. We're going to do it in secret. Like this is where we're going with this. Well, and it it just has to be it has to be a little bit more than an update to your laptop, right? Where it just says, "Would you like to run updates?" and then it says, "Updates running." It has to say there was a problem, and this is what we're updating. Totally agree. Um. I'm I'm curious about this idea of uh, feature suspensions, uh, especially as we're getting to a more feature-based automotive industry, and just seeing what automakers you know might be willing to take away if you don't use it right. You know, just like we're just going to turn it off, and no, if they actually do, no more radio. Happens. That's what you're being punished. <laughs> right? We left the AM radio in, but we turned it off. You listen it on NPR. That's your punishment. <laughs> oh, man. We're just playing old Paul Harvey for you. All right. <clears throat> Before we move on to, uh, in case you missed it, the story is maybe not as popular, but that's still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. We want to tell you to watch a recent white paper discussion that Jeff and I did on Oracle NetSuite's latest white paper. The ultimate guide to scenario planning. These are strategies and steps that you can take to de-risk your organization. So download it, watch it, stream it right now. Let us know what you think. All right. In case you missed it, stories maybe not as popular, but 
still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. Anna, what do you have for us for in case you missed it? Sure. So the uh, the article was titled Hyundai and Kia Design Tires with Integrated Snow Chain Technology. Uh, ben Munson put this together based on some press releases. It's pretty interesting technology. So uh, the two automakers that are um, you know co- combined companies have unveiled a new snow chain integrated tire technology that uses shape memory alloy modules that are located inside the wheel and tire. Uh, the modules will pr- protrude to act as a snow chain when an electrical signal is received. So basically, you can press a button mm-hmm. um, to activate what is essentially the mimics th- th- what a snow chain would do on your tires. And unlike traditional snow chains, which are very complicated to install and <laughs> remove, and everyone hates them, um, this uh, this can add the um, stability and grip and safety on snowy roads and just be part and parcel with your vehicle. So um, the technology is patent pending in South Korea as well as in the U.S. And Hyundai and Kia plan to consider mass production of the tires after further technological development and review. I selected this article because... I love tire innovation. Mm -hmm. Um, It's such an overlooked element of overall safety for a vehicle. Um, So many accidents happen because of weather and slipping and sliding. So many accidents happen because of tires blowing out. Um, So I think R&D in this segment, um, those dollars are very well spent. But being from Wisconsin, obviously we know that um, snow chains are not an ideal product. They're really tough on the roads. They're actually less safe when it's not snowing, but they're a pain to take on and off. Um, and so, um, it was exciting to see that this could be like an on-demand product. Um, and I think it would just be incredibly useful and maybe even, um, serve as a choice to people in climates who feel like they need to have all wheel drive. Maybe they don't. Yeah. So, um, anyway, I I just found it to be very fascinating and and being from Wisconsin and knowing snow, um, how much value could be, um, gleaned from this. Well, a lot of innovation has gone into tires, right? Especially when it comes to sustainability, Yep. but there are just very basic things that need to be improved, like handling in bad conditions. And I thought this was a really cool, um, technology. If we could see it hit the market, Jeff, one thing I liked, and I don't know if it was, uh, the company or Ben, but, uh, They say, um, the article says, the snow chain integrated tire technology consists of a wheel and tire assembly that feature radial grooves at regular intervals, like a pizza. So it's just like, at first it's just like, yeah, I know I get that. Oh no, I get pizza. Okay, I know where they're going. I know where they're going. (laughs) Really painted a clear picture for me there. Uh, What did you think about integrated snow chain tire technology? Awesome. Great job by Ben putting that together. It made me think maybe I brought this up before, but I was actually at a show in Reno. Okay. And I flew out of someplace in California. I can't remember exactly the dynamic, but one of the deals was going through the mountains, you need you there was a mandate. You had to have chains on your tires if it snowed, if it was bad, whatever. When you're renting a car, yeah. <laughs> you're not really you hardly know the geography or the route to begin with or, or anything else and think, well, do I have to get chains? How do I put these things on? All that type of deal. Yeah. It was a little stressful. Yeah. I would not uh, go. So, for that <laughs> right? Just like it was something we found out before we left. It was not <laughs> okay. like, like that night. Um, so, yeah, something like this, obviously, easy solution. And like Anna said, I mean, putting chains on your tires not ideal for a number of reasons. So, taking the application and putting it into a different technology, that's the solution. Uh, that's a great idea. Have you ever put chains on a tire? I have not. No, me neither. I've never. Never have, never will. No. <laughs> Hopefully, you don't ever have to. Um, well, if you go to Reno, in January. <laughs> and I won't. Those <laughs> uh, Jeff, what's your in case you missed it this week? Uh, sticking on the automotive front, I have to admit, I picked this story partially because just the picture 
got me. Nice. It looks like a pickup, tr- like a dump truck that I got under the tree as a kid. <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. was one of my favorite toys. But actually, this is about General Motors and Komatsu co-developing a hydrogen fuel cell module for their 930E electric drive mining truck. So this is something that they're going to jointly develop the technology. Now, there's a lot of things that are still in development here, but I found it interesting because, again, we're talking about hydrogen fuel cells here. Mm. We're not talking about an electric vehicle. Um, then it talks about them being um, great for electrical applications because uh, of the way they can package large quantities of energy on board the vehicle without compromising payload. And just to offer some perspective, we are talking about, you can't always tell by looking at these things. <laughs> yeah. You know, unless there's somebody really sending next to them or whatever. Yeah. But this is the type, when we look at hydrogen being used to power this vehicle, this is a vehicle that generates over 3,500 horsepower. That's about 1,800 RPM. <laughs> And it's got an operating weight of about 575 tons. So that's over a million, 1.15 million pounds. It's got a hauling capacity of about 500 tons. Wow. So, I mean, it's just enormous. And the cool thing about the application here is, the other thing, this truck can actually get up to 40 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour, believe it or not. So it's just a ton of power that you're looking at right now. And if you're looking at a diesel power drivetrain, that's a ton of pollutants. That's a ton of fossil fuels. It's a ton of cost mm-hmm. as well to operate. Now, these vehicles pretty much stay at the mine that they're working at. They're not really an over-the-road vehicle, as you would guess, because yeah. what road is big enough for them to begin with? But being able to have them centrally located, so then you could have the hydrogen fuel cells right there in terms of replacing, maintaining, updating, all that kind of stuff. And the fact that GM and Komatsu are looking to develop this as soon as 2025 Pretty intriguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we can get it to work on this scale of a vehicle, you would think the turnaround for something smaller yeah. would, would, would come about as well. And we've talked about hydrogen a ton. It's difficult to produce. It's very costly to produce. It's not environmentally friendly to produce. But we've got two pretty um, big players involved here. So, you know, this could be oh, good at- the thing that leads to the thing. No! Oh, thank so. you. Thank you. No, uh, we talk about the technology in the agricultural side um, really being sort of ahead of the pack, but uh, it's the same way on off-highway. You know, in um, GM and Komatsu intend this to be the first prototype hydrotech-powered mining vehicle. Um, and uh, the amount of research that has gone into this yeah. is incredible. Like, uh, GM and is really kind of putting... <laughs> It's money where its mouth is in terms of fuel research technology or fuel cell technology. Um, and it's really cool. But you're, I mean, you're right. It is an amazing photo, yeah. but you don't understand the scale of how large it is until you're like, wait, what now? 1.1 1, 1. 1 million pounds? Yeah. Um, Anna, your thoughts on the latest from GM and Komatsu? Yeah, I love to see it in these other applications. I mean, you, and then I think a good reminder too that. Uh, automakers like GM, they don't have all of their eggs in one basket. You know, they do yeah. have all these other things going. They're just not as visible to the consumer because it's not a consumer application. So we interested to see how this works and then how they can apply some of this technology elsewhere. Well, and it's interesting because really this is where we saw so much electric drivetrain being developed and now mm-hmm. a different approach. So maybe they're looking at some of those supply chain issues, some of the rare earth um, supply chain challenges mm-hmm. and shifting gears a little bit. So for mine, in case you missed it, um, I chose a story about Raytheon, uh, a deal between Raytheon and DARPA that has Raytheon creating these energy webs to charge aircraft in flight during battle. 
So energy harvesting is a great way to keep devices charged, especially in remote and harsh areas. And it doesn't get much more harsh or remote than aerial warfare, like charging aircraft during a dogfight. Raytheon recently received $10 million from DARPA to design and develop these, quote, energy webs, which will be wireless airborne relay systems that can deliver energy in contested environments. As part of the two-year deal, Raytheon's going to create an airborne relay relay, uh, design that will enable these webs that can harvest energy, transmit it, and redirect optical beams in a matter of seconds. The webs will transmit energy from ground sources to high altitude for precision, long-range operation of unmanned systems, sensors, and effectors. And the hope is that harvested energy can reduce the military's dependence on fuel, delivery, and storage. I feel like if you just hear that, you really understand why I picked it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I mean, we're talking about creating an energy web that beams energy to uh, Warcraft in flight. And that is just incredible to me. And I I know that uh, um, we've been in this industry for a long time and it goes way back to the birth of energy harvesting. And if you remember going to like those sensor shows where they have like the little wind powered flags and that's all it takes to uh, get the, keep the battery going. And definitely like we have seen energy harvesting come so far uh, in just a short amount of time. And it's incredible. I understand that DARPA is very um, on the, uh, on the front line in terms of new technologies and seeing what will work. But just the fact that they're willing to put $10 million up for this to see if Raytheon can make it work, that's incredible to me. Uh, Jeff, what did you think about, uh, I guess, whether or not energy webs are at all realistic? I think this might be the most sci-fi thing that we've done in a while. I mean, think about it. This is like what you see in some of those futuristic like movies. Um, it sounds incredible, especially when you read it, to have the ability potentially to basically be in flight, moving wherever, and just radio in and say, hey – yeah. Can you toss some of that juice my way? And <laughs> yeah. that's basically what they're capable of doing. It's it's incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, if this I mean, talk about a thing that leads to things. I mean, if this actually works, yeah, the applications are endless. Oh yeah. And what this does then in terms of I think what this could really do is when you look at a lot of those renewable energy f- sources in terms of the some of the issues we have and connecting them to a grid or making it usable. This could solve a ton of that. Oh, if you're yeah. basically just generating it and shifting it someplace else mm-hmm. as soon as it's made, it's yeah. incredible. No, uh, I thought the same thing is like, okay, first step, figure out how we beam it into the sky. Uh, second step, figure out how the web can beam it back down yeah. to anything that's EV on the ground. Anna, I know that sometimes the more futuristic side of things isn't necessarily your favorite, mm-hmm. but I mean, this is green energy. Yeah. So you got to like that about it. I do. And it, I mean, it has like right now application. So that's what I like about it. You know, some of the futuristic tech, I feel like we don't need it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas this, I feel like we do. So, um, yeah, super interesting. I hope it really makes that like <laughs> noise that I envision that it does. For some yeah, reason. there's like, going to be this constant hum that we'll hear. And it's going to be our energy webs constantly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Beaming power. I need an energy web right now. Just Right. I need, I need a refill on my energy <laughs> Web. Um, all right. Well, great coffee name. It, it is. We got to trademark that right away. Um, all right. Before final thoughts, uh, the contest is back. So our giveaway comes to us from our friends at Sellers. The w- winners are going to receive a Sellers tumbler, a white rags box, and a shop towels box. Uh, we're going to switch it up a little, a uh, little bit this week. We're going to go multiple choice. And uh, Jeff, I thought this was a great idea. Jeff said, "You know what? Let's reach out to sellers and see if they have any cool information that we could potentially use for the giveaway." So, 
Uh, multiple choice this week. The question is, in 2022, how much recycled paper or how much recycled paper waste did sellers use to create its line of wipers and shop towels? A, 3 million pounds. B, 12 million pounds. C, 17 million pounds. Or D, 22 million pounds. That's how much recycled paper, how much recycled paper waste did sellers use last year to create its wipers and shop towels? Uh, email any one of us, Jeff, David, or Anna at IN.com with A, B, C, or D. Let us know what you think. In the process, the company saved some 59 million gallons of water and 143,000 trees. Whoa. So that is significant. That's awesome. So many trees. That's awesome. Uh, just a reminder, founded in 1985 and headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Sellers is a leading manufacturer of shop towels, multi-use disposable wipers, towel and tissue and absorbent products. Uh, the products, which are sold under the Toolbox, Clean Task and Mayfair brands, are made from recycled and renewable materials. They're high performance and, as we've obviously said good for the environment all right our final thoughts this week anna what do you have for us uh real quick so we're having our our company holiday party this week um which is an annual event that we all i think look forward to because if you think we get tired of each other we actually don't um or at least i <laughs> despite, don't anyway. no, despite our many attempts to, <laughs> to push the to, limit yes i mean i think i alienated alex enough he left he did leave it's all um, right. he did not care for that union break yeah. sorry alex <laughs> So um, anyway, just want to say thanks to, in not like a, a butt kissing way, but like thanks to our um, owners who throw us a really nice party every year. It's mm-hmm. going to be super fun. Looking forward to that. No, looking forward to it. And also like the anxiety of like how much fun that party is going to be and just trying to see if I can keep the fun lower than I know I'm going to. David, it's just, David. Just no self-control. To go get a massage or something before the party. <laughs> <laughs> um. My final thought this week is this is episode 149. So next week, our last episode before we take a break for the holiday is going to be episode 150. Really reached a milestone. And that's just incredible. I feel like it happened really quick. (laughs) But obviously, uh, you know, just a short 150 weeks ago. Yeah, just the sands of time. But I thought that was incredible. And, you know, we've been doing We did 149 of these now and I enjoyed every week. So I uh, really appreciate that, guys. Um, my other final thought was that I recently had the opportunity to tour Great Lakes Distillery in Milwaukee. And it was just so much fun. Like, uh, I've never gone on a distillery tour. I've done a couple of brewery tours, um, but I've never been in. It was like a little craft distillery that happens to sell Rayhorst gin, which is just like my number two. So as soon as I was like, I was like, wait a second, Great Lakes does Rayhorst? Okay. And then uh, it was a great time, probably mostly for me because uh, the guy at every stop was just say, uh, do we have any questions? And I had like five at every stop. Oh, you were that guy. Well, I was that guy because it was like, it was, it was like, it was food manufacturing. I felt like I was on a story. And uh, uh, one of my good friends, Pete was just like, are you doing a story right now? Because we're just trying to get through the tour so we can get to the sampling. I was going to say, everybody wants to just get the drinks. Everyone wants to get in. The sampling was plentiful. Let's just say this is a, this is not a drive-to sort of experience if you don't have a driver. Um, but it was incredible. Really encourage you to get out there and like take tours of distilleries and other small craft manufacturing operations out there that offer them. Just because, 
I, it, it, sh- it gives you an incredible amount of insight into the industry, what goes into the production of these products, and actually kind of how uh, one of the things that kind of stood out was just like the very small differences uh, between what makes certain liquors. It was, it was cool. Plus, like our tour guide just got blitzed. Like <laughs> he was going so fast. Like uh, he, you know, he started, he had like a, a drink that was half gone when we started and we started at like 10 in the morning. And so it was like a nice brunch, uh, brunch drunk. But then by the end, and he like weirdly had like five buttons down. It was just like, man, this guy's got a vibe and I'm loving it. And so, and meanwhile, I'm just like, yeah, but like how many barrels are you selling per quarter? And how does that stack up against the other craft distilleries in Wisconsin? He's just like, go away. Yeah, he's like, go away. Yeah. Nerd yeah. alert. Yeah. Maybe that's Please. why he was drinking so much. <laughs> Probably. I was forcing it. Um, but yeah, so that's my final thought this week. 150. We're crushing it to 150 more. And get out and uh, check out those local distilleries. Uh, Jeff, your final thought. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on checking out the local dist- um, distilleries, um, craft breweries, all that kind of stuff. Those things are awesome. Yeah. I agree. Also, if you've ever gotten like a free sample of the seller's towels and stuff, they're also fantastic. Yeah, they so, are. So like are. jump in on that that uh, multiple choice question there. So my final thought, I guess, was it comes from as we gear up around the holidays. This year, for whatever reason, we ended up having kind of a debate on Christmas cookies. What? Like which ones to make or how many? Because one of the things oh. I love the Christmas cookies but I hate like throwing them away, like because you get like you make too many of yep. some of them. Oh, yep. So I'm sorry, is- I've never had that problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, what do you mean? Because like um, my wife and daughters make these like they're like butterscotch with the marshmallows and stuff like that. Okay, and they're I'm not a big marshmallow guy, so those don't get eaten. Yeah. So it's kind of do we have to can we make fewer of those? And that was not a good suggestion. Oh. That was not well received. Yeah, I understand. So I'm just gonna let it be. But is there like that one? cookie that's kind of like the last one off the plate ever or you just focus oh, on the winners yeah what are what's the one with the uh the oval shaped with the powdered sugar around it and it has nuts in it what are with um, those what i, I don't yeah. know like they're they're yeah. the last one on every platter yeah but, i know like, what you're talking about i'm not a fan of those no but either. in the event i mean i'm still not throwing them away but uh in the event that you ever come close to such a harrowing situation please call me wherever you are and say right. like hey <laughs> we're about to throw away the cookies right. and i'm just like i'm 15 minutes away all right yeah no no cookie left behind as long yeah. as we have like the peanut butter cookies with the uh, Hershey's Kiss. Oh in the yeah, middle. those are the best. I'm good. Yeah, those are the best. It's this. They're so simple and yeah. they're just perfect. Mm-hmm. My my favorite are um, my grandma called them pillow cookies. It's like a thin layer of like a sugar cookie with a little bit of chocolate, and then you roll another thin layer of sugar cookie on top, and then you dust it with um, a little bit of like just red or green. Uh, Sugar? That sounds awesome. Ooh, it does sound awesome. It's good, but they're like so impossible what, to make. What happened if somebody put like jelly or fruit in there, David? Oof. Um, they'd be dead to the family. (laughs) You are booted from the cookie exchange. Seth says, hashtag save the cookies. I couldn't agree more, Seth. I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Hashtag donate, don't destroy. Donate to David, don't destroy. button issue here. You really started something. Donate to David, don't destroy. It's real simple. There's a T in there. Huh? Nothing. No, no, we don't need to worry about the tea, just the four Ds. Yeah. All right. Uh, you can also uh, help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, win the contest, reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. Make sure you get it delivered to your inbox first. Or 
Subscribe to us on YouTube at IN Magazine so you can join Mark, Jesse, and Seth and everyone that joins us live just to kind of, you know, bring uh, bring like a, another element to the podcast. I really enjoy when people join us live just because, like, uh, we have a plan. We don't know what they're Jeff Frankie and Anna Wells. I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing Podcast. See you next week.